Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Hey guys, if you like our show, do me a favor and take a moment to share us with your friends and leave a rating and some feedback in your podcast app. Today, we're talking about a topic that I asked a ton of questions about, and I'm sure we're going to have great information for you. It's early labor. When does labor begin? What might it feel like? What to do when it starts, how to get it to start, when to call for your support team and go to the hospital. I mean, especially if you've never had a child before, most people wonder a lot about this topic. My guest today has been a midwife in Los Angeles for almost 20 years. In 2009, she opened and was clinical director of the Sanctuary Birth Center. She has worked with over 3,000 families over the last few decades. Most recently, she started and is co-host of the podcast Under the Hood. Check it out. Under the Hood takes a look at some of the mysteries surrounding the female body, such as hormones through the different stages of a woman's life, perspectives on modern feminism, orgasm, and in the upcoming seasons, we'll take a closer look at the perinatal cycles while having much-needed conversations with her awesome co-host, Patty Quintero. She's a mother to a fiery nine-year-old daughter and currently does preconception work, home birth, and postpartum care. Alexandra Evangeliti, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. One of my favorite people in the whole world. Aww, I feel the same way. After I met you. About you. That's what I mean. Oh, thanks. I thought you were one of your favorite people in the whole world. <laughs> I'm working towards that every day. After I met you and had like three or four conversations with you, you're such a unique way, just a different spirit. I thought, I want to get pregnant and have <laughs> Alex be my midwife. Well, I don't know if modern science is quite caught up to that. I don't know. But... I'm listening to Under the Hood. I'm trying to find the secrets. Well, we're we're not really overriding biology quite there yet. We're not there in that. As but. a society, we're getting pretty close. I know, I know. So there's hope. Well, handmaids. Don't yeah. retire. Oh, handmaids. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So first of all, before we get into early labor, which is really important topic, um, people also ask a lot of questions about what's the difference between a midwife, a doula, and a doctor. Okay. Well. Um, let me just see if I can simplify this without going too tangential for you. Um, a doula is not typically medically trained, right? You can do a doula training in about a weekend, sometimes two weekends. That's what I did. Yeah, that's what makes you the best doula in L.A. <laughs> um, and those, you know, you're not doing clinical stuff as a doula and really legally liability-wise, you really shouldn't be unless you also hold a medical license that entitles you to do that. Usually doulas do a lot of emotional support, a lot of physical support, but in terms of assessing the well-being of mom or taking heart tones, for instance, blood pressure, vaginal exams, doulas typically do not do that unless they're also nurses mm -hmm. or carry some other license that entitles them to do that. It's a lot of PFA, psychological first aid. Exactly. And so necessary. So necessary. And comforting touch. Yeah. But massage. They're not, yeah. They're not medical things. No. No. Um, but critical, I would say. Important. And it's a very important piece of the puzzle. And for some people, especially to have that support makes all the difference. Absolutely. It's just not medical. Right. 
Now, midwives, many of us practice either in the home birth, I mean, in the home setting, the birth center setting, or some midwives are also trained to practice in the hospital. The hospital-based midwives are typically nurses first, midwives second, and their overall approach to birth tends to be more inside of some of the medical doctrines, Mm -hmm. whereas midwives who are trained out of the hospital tend to carry a more holistic training. So they might bring an approach such as using herbs or homeopathy. Um, A lot of midwives have other unique trainings like their lactation consultants as well or um, acupuncturists. Mm -hmm. Really? Yes. I have not met the acupuncture midwife yet. She exists in L.A. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth Bachner, Graceful Bliss. Oh, yeah. I have met the acupuncturist uh, midwife. So, you know, um, and then obstetricians, they they speak for themselves, right? They are typically not comfortable with the home birth model. Their comfort zone is in the hospital. And, you know, in the countries with the best perinatal outcomes, midwives are managing the low-risk patients and the OBs are managing high-risk patients. Mm -hmm. It's not so in the U.S., in the U.S., OBs are managing 98.6% of, of the clients. All pregnancy, yeah. labor, and delivery. Yeah. So even at home, there's different kinds of midwives. There are. Yeah. I mean, you know, California is pretty strict with its regulations. So typically you are either a licensed midwife, licensed by the medical board, or you're a certified nurse midwife. So you're licensed by the nursing board. Other states, some- And the certified nurse midwives are the ones that train at at the hospital? Yes, correct. And the licensed midwives train at home? Correct. Okay. When you're training to be a home birth midwife, you've been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like before it was super cool. I always thought it was cool. Before it was in. It was, yeah. Well, yeah. There was a a lot more uh, red tape when I was getting into it. My what? preceptors trained at a time where there really wasn't even licensure. I don't want to get too off, but what made you get into it before it was in? Um, it was a calling, you know. I think with any kind of gig that you're really passionate about, you are drawn to it. It is drawn to you, you know. Uh, and for me, I was really doing a personal inquiry as to what I would do with my life, you know. I, You know, a lot of people believe in past lives or future lives, I was like, I know for sure this one, I want to give it 100%. I wanted to do something that was meaningful for me. And, you know, I felt like at the end, when I look back, I made an important impact. And, and was it between this and something else? Like, maybe I'll make pies. No, I'll deliver babies. <laughs> um, I, I always thought something in the healing arts. You know, I I thought about acupuncture, but I didn't really want to go back and do all that kind of school again. Um, Plus, we already have an acupuncture midwife around here. I I bet (laughs) there's more. There probably are. But Um, I don't know about here, though. Although you did, I had forgotten about Elizabeth, so maybe there are more. Um, And then I read a a book. Um, Have you ever heard of the book, The Red Tent? Yes. So there was something about every single birth in this book. I was sobbing. And the idea of midwifery was presented in the book. And I was like, oh, my, this is this is something I need to look further. And um, again, it was like one of those situations where as soon as I landed on it, it was like like dodging asteroids where like, oh, this doula training was coming. And I was like, I should probably take this doula training. And then it was um, I had a friend who was giving birth at a birth center right by my house. And I was like, what? There's a, there's a birth, what? So I um, went and checked it out. And as I walked up the steps, the office manager looked at me and I clearly, like, I don't, like, my eyeballs were as big as saucers. And she asked me, oh, did you want to be a midwife? <gasps> and I was like, is it tattooed on my forehead? <laughs> um, and it, it was just, it was like the seas parted. Wow. I can't imagine you really doing anything else. I I have thought some days, you know, like some days are definitely, you know, I had a, a midwife that I worked with at one point and she said, after like a difficult birth, she's like, 
that's a brown liquor birth. We need a we need some brown liquor around here to kind of <laughs> just wash that one away. Yeah, it, it's got to be really challenging. I mean, it's uh, you know you guys see a lot. Anybody who's going to be around delivering babies is kind of better days and worse worse days. Absolutely. Some... I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything because it's really the most authentic experience of the 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 wild untamed part of the human experience you know to get that close to that mm-hmm. as frequently as we get to um to be with women as they are shedding and and dads too you know or our partners like to to be with people let's just mm-hmm. call them people as they are shedding so many layers of their own limiting beliefs and they are are conquering aspects of their ego and to hold their hand and look into their eyes as they are really traversing their inner terrain in birthing their child. I mean, it is, it is an incredible privilege. Yeah. I, I've stopped going to births or I tried to stop going to births <laughs> about seven, eight months ago now. Uh-huh. Um, I still getting called in periodically. Um, I feel really grateful to have been invited to, participating in people's birds. Actually, I'll start with you. I, C- calling me one time <laughs> while I was at a pet store trying not to buy a pet for my kids. And you're like, hey, you ever work on somebody's baby who's posterior try to open the hips and see if it'll turn around? I'm like, mm, no, never done that. And you're like, you want to try? <laughs> I'm now? Like, sure, when? And you're like, yeah, come now. Um, and we walked in, I walked into that birth. I'd never met her before. The mom? And, yeah, the mom. Any, any of them. I mean, just you, really. <laughs> I'd never met her. I never met her partner. Um, she was knee deep in labor. She was like in this interesting Alex place that you got her to, like uh, halfway between like pain and ecstasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to do informed consent with her. I'm like, hi, I'm the chiropractor. <laughs> Want to do some massage with you? Is that okay? And this and that. And she's like, I love you, Mr. Berlin. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay. And they were filming it for a documentary. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I like, how does my bald spot look on camera too? Uh, <laughs> but it really was like, that's what really got me started going to births outside of my own. And just what you said, it's, it's an incredible privilege and journey. But ultimately, unlike a doula, all of the responsibility really is on your shoulders as the medical provider. Yeah. And so when the going gets tough, I don't know how you guys do it. Brown liquor, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> That's but, after. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's not, after. Not, you know. not during. It's not in the uh it's not in the licensed midwifery textbook. Mm-mm. Um, you know, I think the reason why it feels safe, you know, I find birthing at home safer because there's so much relationship and intimacy between care provider and, you know, we don't call them patients. We call them clients. Mm-hmm. Um, they're low risk, which means they don't have any identifiable health conditions that would make the birth itself risky for the mom or for the baby. We get to spend so much time preparing them physically so that, you know, my personal agenda is that when clients come into care, by the time they're getting ready to deliver, they're healthier than they've ever been in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course that that's physically, but there's the psycho-emotional aspect too. You know, if somebody comes in and they're exhibiting a lot of fear or anxiety or depression or whatever, we get to work. It's not just like, here, take this pill. It's like, hey, let's unpack mm-hmm. some of this earlier life trauma or, you know, narratives that we have about ourselves or about life and get ourselves into a really good place with our relationship with our partner. I mean, we don't mince words, but we have so much time where we can drop in with our client. It's these issues that are in our experience during our pregnancy that OBs are not really, they're not working through this with their client. I mean, their model's not even set up to be aware, to really mm-hmm. check in on, mm-hmm. on the more holistic elements. It's sort of like, how big is your belly and pee in this cup? And yeah. it's more take clinical. Your, take your blood pressure and let's look at the baby on ultrasound. Great, you look great. And that is not to say OBs are not amazing. I love the OBs I work with. I need them. It's a different model. It's a different model. And for most pregnant women, I mean, certainly the ones that are in my care, we got some unpacking to do, you know, like we spend 45 minutes of the appointment talking about what's actually going on in their lives. 
you know? The fact that obstetrics is missing that, I can't imagine that they really know who their clients are, Right. you know? Nor do they know how to really get them through the darker moments. And I think that kind of speaks as to why OBs get there, you know, when the baby's head is Right, but that's what I was thinking to myself. Their model doesn't really even have them there for those darker moments. Mm -mm. They come once all the work is pretty much done. I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying they come for pushing. Uh, They come for catching. They're not really even there. They come for catching. That's more accurate. Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's talk about early labor. So, okay. I mean, you've been involved in a lot of births. Do you know how many you've attended? Uh, somewhere a thousand-ish, maybe oh a little more. I don't. That's I'm not a lot the of best. amniotic fluid. That's <laughs> I'm just thinking. And other fluids. A lot of fluid lot in general. Of, yeah. Good call. Um, okay, so early labor. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people wonder how is this going to feel? What's going to happen? How do I know it's labor? How is it different than Braxton Hicks? Help us out. Okay. Well, Braxton Hicks don't hurt. That's a a really like basic way of starting this off. Um, So if your Braxton Hicks hurt, that's generally an indicator that something else is going on. Um, Braxton Hicks come and go. Most women don't even know when they're having them unless they're having a subsequent pregnancy than their first. Or if they are, like maybe you might notice if you have an orgasm, your uterus gets really tight. Or if you are walking or exercising, you notice that your belly feels tight. A lot of people think it's the baby pushing, but actually it's the uterine muscles. And the only way for the uterus to grow from about the size of your fist to maybe the size of a watermelon to Mm. compensate for a baby is to actually contract and then release, contract, release. So this is happening the entire pregnancy, whether or not we're aware of it. Um, It's actually even happening when we're not pregnant. You know, every organ has its own rhythm. You say they don't hurt, but you can be aware of them. So mm-hmm. do you feel a pressure? Do you just feel the tightening, the firming up of the muscle? What? It can be all those. It can be like just a shortness of breath. It can be the thing that wakes you up at night and then you realize you have to pee. You know, it's kind of a real estate issue too. If your bladder gets too full, your uterus might contract and babies start kicking your bladder and then you realize, oh, you know, it's my time for my hourly pee this mm. evening. So that's. Braxton Hicks. Um, They tend to get more frequent the more pregnant you are. So at the end of pregnancy, you'll feel your belly tightening if the baby kicks, if you sneeze, if you turn your head one way or another. Um, Contractions actually feel quite different. So labor contractions, which can happen really, um, you know, I mean, ideally, you want to try and get to 36, 37 weeks, 37 weeks if you're trying to have a home birth. Um, But contractions feel crampy. They feel, um, sometimes you feel them more like fundal, which is the top of the uterus. Sometimes you feel them more cervical. So as you're getting closer to the end of your prenatal term and maybe getting close to 40 weeks, you might feel a lot more of that... um, what do they call it? Electrical uh, lightning. Lightning crash. Lightning crash. Yeah. So that's when the head is really like pressing down on the cervix itself. Mm-hmm. And the cervix is really effacing. It's starting to shorten. Um, and there's little nerve endings in your cervix kind of letting you know that sometimes there's contractions that are kind of affecting that area as well. Um, as you get a little bit closer to Is that labor. cramping? People ask this a lot. Is that cramping similar to menstrual cramping? It is. Okay. It is. It, it can feel like heaviness, that sensation you get, not you, yeah. Elliot, but um, that women would get before they're about to bleed. Mm-hmm. I get it after Chinese food. Yeah, that's... Separate that's, issue. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enzymes? I'll call my Mr. Wife. <clears throat> Um, So low back pain, when the contractions start to wrap around and they're kind of like, you know, the muscle of the uterus is not just in the front of your body, right? It's like a huge balloon. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you'll feel those muscles, um, the muscle wrap around where the ligaments are actually holding onto the sacrum. Oh, the sacro-uterine ligaments. So that's kind of why you might feel that warmth. Oh, yeah. And those ligaments are like the round ligaments. They have muscle fibers running through Uh them so they can tense up. Right. Pull on your sacrum. 
A little physiology for you, right? There you go. Together, we're unstoppable. <laughs> we should get capes. <laughs> I have them. You do? It's imaginary, but oh. yeah, I definitely Hold feel on. like... I have one too now. What color is yours? Green. Mine's red. Perfect. Or like the... Sometimes gold, if I'm like, okay, Mine's I Mine's sometimes silver. Is it? Okay. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we can go metallic or we can go right? primary. Okay. Okay. So, so that's does the that, contractions. So those are contractions. And then, you know, as labor. But they don't hurt. Contractions. Oh, they can hurt. You know, as we're moving into labor, you're going to feel sensations. Some people would not describe it as pain. And I, I really, I like that attitude. Um, it's nice. for Except the, that sometimes they hurt. Sometimes they hurt. They do. And typically they hurt more as you're getting further into labor. So if somebody wakes up and they feel this kind of crampy achiness, at what point do they take some kind of action? Action is an interesting word. You know, sometimes <laughs> sometimes action is just surrender, right? Action isn't necessarily about doing something. You know, I, I'd love to, like, change that 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 I, I, idea and turn it more into awareness, and, you know, if you're waking up and you're starting to feel those sensations, the first thing I tell my clients is go back to bed, mm-hmm. you know, to try not to give it as much attention as possible and to just kind of be more a witness and observe. And, you know, early labor, typically you can relax through them. You can rest through them. Maybe throw a couple pillows between your knees, create some space and just try and drift off in between them there's a you know is there anything because i think that that sounds wonderful except for someone who's never done it before their their mind sort of goes to is this normal or not is there anything that you can put your finger on that either you could say oh that's that's what it's supposed to feel like just relax or the opposite like as long as it doesn't feel like this you're fine well i think what would be most helpful instead of trying to characterize, is this normal, is this not normal, is how can I be as relaxed and open and resistance-free to what is happening right now versus panic and, you know, tensing? You know, it's if you've never had a baby, this is the sensation that you've been waiting, you know, your whole pregnancy to experience. If you are having pain and you are not term, like if you're having contractions, these things that we were calling maybe Braxton Hicks, and then suddenly they start hurting and they become regular, this is when somebody needs to contact their care provider. Preterm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, it depends. Like as a midwife, if my clients are in early labor, I want to know. Yeah, that's what that's what I want to know. When do you want to know? I want to know when they know. At one thirty in the morning? I mean, like if they're like just kind of like having some, you know, let's call them waves or surges. I know hypnobirthers mm-hmm. like to identify them that way. If you're starting to feel these uterine stimulations that are uncomfortable, you would maybe describe them as dif- discomfort or pressure. In the past, it has resembled menstrual pain or, you know, like diarrhea, like really bad gas. That's another like uh, way that people will describe labor. Like, oh, I ate something funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's normal to be feeling when your term, you know, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42 weeks. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to be feeling that at 28 weeks. Right. You know? But when you are past 37, let's say, in mm-hmm. that window of term, and you are feeling this crampiness, this waviness, this achiness, this tension build up, and it comes and goes. Is there a pattern that you might expect to see? So I want to identify early labor and prodromal labor. Okay. That's a great uh, – it's one of my questions. Oh, so I must be psychic. Okay. So prodromal labor is a bummer when it happens in some ways. <laughs> Because it can really exhaust you. Like you might think, okay, the show is on. And then, you know, you're having these surges or contractions like every 15 minutes or every 20 minutes for hours. And it doesn't seem to be increasing. 
And maybe it's happening for days. That And it's not just a little rough. twinge. It's no, like it it's, looks like active labor. Well It can look like active labor. Let's just say it's I don't want to invalidate any woman that's had it. It feels draining. It yeah. feels dis- it feels uncomfortable. I would say for every care provider, doula and mom who's gone through this process, it's it it can be really exhausting. And not necessarily progressive. Not like, productive. You're not necessarily having dilation. You're not, you know, you might be effacing. But if you're, like, waiting for things to get closer and more intense, as, you know, the textbooks say or as your midwife says or your doctor says, call me when they're, you know, five minutes apart, and that's not happening, it can get frustrating, you know, and it's just exhausting. I've had clients who have done this for days. On the flip side, can labor progress without Getting that close together? Not too much. Not really. So. No. That's why, you know, they want to put your Pitocin at getting your contractions three minutes apart. Um, it, it, it really, I have never, I, mean, I can't say never, it's never happened out there. I'm sure it has. But I've never seen labor really progress when contractions are 15 minutes apart. They're spaced out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, it, you know, I think in order for the hormones to really stick, there's got to be that kind of escalation. Now, I have had clients who've had painless childbirths. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, (laughs) I had a conversation with a woman a couple days ago. And she's like, you know, I knew I was in labor when I was getting kind of (laughs) short-tempered. I laughed. I was like, that's (laughs) me every day. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, it it is possible to have a painless childbirth. I've I've seen it. Mm Mm-hmm. But usually women who are having that experience know that something isn't quite right. You know, like they are feeling some sensation. Maybe they wouldn't, you know, classify it as pain or discomfort, but they're having something that is like they feel out of it completely. And they are like, why do I feel like I'm on drugs? Um, Because they're on drugs. They are, aren't they? They're on drugs. The Um, self-made ones. Wow. All right. I'm already getting a lot of information out of you, even things that I'm learning that I didn't know before. So thank you. Um, uh, It's time to take a little break. Okay. But then we're going to come right back and learn a lot more about early labor. Uh, Don't go anywhere. Join us in just a moment with Alex Evangelini. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and we're continuing our discussion about early labor with midwife Alexandra Evangelini. All right, here's a question for you. If labor hasn't started and you're at the end of that window that you rattled off, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, are there things that actually can help bring labor on? There are. Um, you know, I think the most important thing is you're not waiting until, you know, the day before your doctor wants to induce you to do some of these things. Um, so, you know, as a midwife practicing in California, we have until 42 weeks pregnant to have a home birth. Um, most OBs these days are inducing at 39 if you're over the age of 35. Mm-hmm. Um, which is that is, newish? That is, yeah, I think that 
came out. I think ACOG came out with that, like, I don't know, a year ago. Yeah, recently. Um, which is uh, not necessarily clinically supported. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, it's always about trying to avoid um, other complications, right? Like, you kind of cause some by avoiding others. Right, everything has, has risks and benefits. So yeah. they're trying to avoid certain risks, but... In doing that, you sort of create other risks. Correct. Um, And then also, once that becomes a community norm, then there becomes, for them, liability if they don't induce somebody Mm -hmm. at 39 who's over 35. Correct. So, So, you know, most women having their first baby will gestate until 41 and a half weeks. We see it all the time. That just is the time in which bodies are regulated and ready. It's like whatever the chemical cocktail that happens between the mother's pituitary and the baby's readiness and the placenta and how all those like really magical and still quite misunderstood and not clearly figured out. Uh, It's not, you know, the science of how labor begins is still quite a mystery to us. I have a vision. You do. It's the safety deposit box at the local bank. If you want to open it, you have to put in your key and the branch manager has to put in their key and they both have to turn before we can open. So I sort of picture that's what happens. Like the baby says, I'm ready, and the mommy says, I'm ready, and then things can take place. I love that. Thank you. That's really that's a nice It's one of my only non-food-based analogies, <laughs> <laughs> except I keep food in my safety deposit box. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, Well-preserved, I hope. Sure. Um, so 39 weeks. It's really hard to get labor going before that. So, and you know. Especially if you don't have both keys and, and you know yeah. what I mean? Like if they're not ready, then you're trying to force something that's just not naturally wanting to happen. Yeah. So you're going to, you're going to end up with those three day inductions. And, you know, I think a lot of women aren't really getting true informed consent. They're not really understanding what the risks are. I hear a lot of women who, you know, are coming to midwives after the fact um, with their second or third baby and, you know, saying, yeah, my doctor asked me if I wanted to induce at 39 weeks. And I was, yeah, sure, I want to meet my kid. I'm ready to be done with this pregnancy. And they don't realize that the risk of C-section goes up, the risk of meconium aspiration can go up because baby's getting stressed out from the medications and the fact that this is taking a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, an induction at 39 weeks could take three days. Yeah, and then sometimes you wonder if you had just waited three more days. Like, wouldn't labor have started just happen anyway? No way to know. Um, And, you know, for me, with my clients, with the due date, you know, we we look at that 40-week day and, you know, we're like, schedule a manicure or get a massage and don't stress too much about it. Um, But because state in California has a law that says you can't do over 42 weeks. At 41 weeks, we, you know, take a a closer look. And at this point, you know... That's a law specific to midwives. It is. That you, your your scope of practice for delivering babies is 37 to 42 weeks. Correct. And that's California. That's California. but, But even within California, the laboring person has the right the option to have a baby before or after that point. They just can't do it with a midwife. Correct. So just a little distinction to know that California doesn't tell a woman she can't have her baby after 42 weeks. It's just she can no longer do it the way she might have been planning. Correct. And, you know, most OBs, it seems nowadays, would like to induce by 41 weeks. Sure, yeah. Which is going to have better outcomes just because the cervix tends to be more ripe by that point. Mm-hmm. However, with my clients, you know, when we get to 40, if the mom is still comfortable, I tell her not to stress about it. If she's losing her mind already and it's like, you know, October and she's like her ankles are swollen and she's sweating and we're having to have one of those typical heat waves, get some acupuncture, mm-hmm. get some massage on those points. Let's do some hypnosis sometimes. I mean, one of my favorite induction tools is the breast pump. Mm-hmm. Let's get the uterus working. Let's see what it does when we stimulate the breasts as you, you know, uh, I mean, when you put the breast pump on or suck nipples, we can say that, right? Yeah. Okay. You just did. Okay. <laughs> we have to edit that one. No. Um, it's going to create uterine contractions. 
mm-hmm. both the hormones that are released and there is a connection between nipple stimulation and the uterus. Right. Well, there's a connection. I mean, oxytocin sort of drives both, mm-hmm. right? So so stretching the uterus releases oxytocin, which makes the uterus contract, but also nipple stimulation releases oxytocin for milk letdown. Mm-hmm. So you can you can tap into that wisdom. Tap. <laughs> we can say tap. <laughs> Um, so we might do a little practice with the breast pump, you know, nothing too aggressive, maybe 15 minutes. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. And most women will experience some kind of uterine contractions. Oh. Um, you know, again, I think it's, it's better to just kind of dance around some of these augmentation methods, um, versus, you know, balls to the wall, let's go all in, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest thing that we have as a tool to get labor going is castor oil mm-hmm. and you know what is castor oil it's a berry mm-hmm. that grows on plants actually locally you can see them they look like little spiky grenades they're tiny oh, people say that's what they feel like <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's rough and you know i i don't make the recommendation for a mom to drink castor oil unless um there's a lot of other factors in place. You know, she's got to be hydrated. She's got to be nourished. I mean, the, the truth is you're going to get really dehydrated if you drink that. And you want to make sure you have reserves. Because of the diarrhea? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... So it irritates not just the uterus sort of into contracting, but also the GI tract. The GI is spasms, mm-hmm. which then causes the uterus to contract. Yeah. So it's it's rough, you know, I and it's... I, I, we do informed consent as midwives. We will tell you, here are all your options. In fact, when a client comes into care with me, I give them a big fat book that takes them throughout their whole pregnancy. And it's got a whole section on, you know, what happens if we go post-dates. Also, you know, I think it's really important as you're reaching 41 weeks that you have post-dates testing with an OB because that's not something typically midwives perform. And um, what that really looks like is you are having an ultrasound where they assess the fluid levels, they look at the placenta, they're looking at the baby, is the baby practicing breathing? You know, they do a full assessment of the baby by like kind of through the looking glass. Mm-hmm. And then they'll do a 20-minute recording where there's a monitor on the baby's heart rate and a monitor on the woman's uterus. And they are assessing how the baby is responding to all the uterine stimulation that um, the baby's receiving. This test is a great way of assessing fetal well-being. You know, the non-stress test in the ultrasound Mm -hmm. gives us so much information. And the typical standard is if you get really good scores, then, you know, you got three more days. Good for a few more. Yeah. And you can do it again if you need to. And three days later, you do another non-stress test and biophysical profile and see how baby is doing then. You know, it gives us a lot of um, space inside of a container of time. I want to go back to what we started to talk about before Mm -hmm. the break, um, which is when early labor starts. You were talking about prodromal, where they're spaced far apart, but they might be intense. They could be draining. That was prodromal. But early labor is different than that. Early labor is different. So one more thing I want to say about like this like whole context of early labor or prodromal labor, don't bake a cake. Don't bake a cake. Don't bake a cake. Don't get your art supplies out. Don't <laughs> turn this into like don't do that. And there's reasons why, you know, like I think there are books that are like, oh, early labor activities. Don't do those. Don't don't, don't bake a cake. Don't do that. No. Preserve your energy. Yes. Yeah. That's really because if you can look at labor as a marathon experience, which it really is, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's certainly going to take you across the finish line. Um, but what you need to get across any finish line if you're running a marathon is energy. Not cake energy. Not cake You're not going <laughs> to want to eat that cake. Um, it's Traditionally, nice. they would say make the cake or cookies to take to the hospital so the nurses will be nice to you. Oh, Yeah. You can send them after yeah. a thank you. You can gift. postmates. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, yeah, early labor rest. Reserve your energy. Don't try and walk your baby out. It's you know, it doesn't work, and then you end up being exhausted. I mean, I hear you just saying rest, chill, relax, rest and surrender, chill until the next. Try not thing. to think about it. Bath. 
bath, if your water's not broken in early labor, can be great. It can really help you relax into the sensations. Um, the one thing about prodromal labor that I do like is it gets you kind of numb to what's happening, mm-hmm. right? Like the first few sensations that you have that are actually uncomfortable are shocking. And you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. You know, like I think that's crossed every woman's mind. And then you get used to it. And then you're just like, oh, yeah, this is just what's happening now. And mm-hmm. when your body, you know, I, I love Michel Audin and how he talks about like the love cocktail and the labor hormones. <laughs> um, and, you know, what happens is, is your body kind of gets, again, high from the sensations where you get kind of used to them. Mm-hmm. So. You know, one of the things I love doing with a client in labor is taking advantage of these, um, of this like increase in sensation. So as things are getting more intense, inviting the woman to really dive into that sensation and go with it. Um, I don't know. The, one of these births I attended not too long ago, it felt like we were going into rooms where each room was like a level of sensation. And when we were done with all that we could feel at that level, it was almost like we invited the next level in. Oh, wow. That's like Mario Brothers. And then (laughs) we we up-level to another (laughs) degree. So a little mushroom. Bloop, bloop. Yeah. Bloop, 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 bloop. Can we edit that to have the song to go with it? (laughs) So, um, and then the next room, you're at this whole other level of intensity, but then you get used to that. And if you can experience labor, if, you, if you're open or if you have a doula or a midwife with you who can help bring you through these different rooms of intensity, um, you get so stoned in the process of labor that it really works as a, a chemical to, um, it's a, its own pain release. Sure. I mean, you just, uh, uh, one birth in particular sticks out of my mind where she went from this moment of well, let me back up for a second, because what you just described as rooms, I tend to think of as a dance between like oxytocin and adrenaline, that um, whatever happens, sensations you start to feel that you're not familiar with, um, if they make you nervous, uh, fearful, uncomfortable, anxious, then you will release uh, adrenaline, and adrenaline's a little kind of governor on the oxytocin, slows it down, competes for binding, so that the oxytocin doesn't have its full effect until you feel relaxed, until mm-hmm. you feel comfortable, until you safe. conquer it, until you feel safe. And then what you call that next room, I sort of envision as the adrenaline's kind of going away and the mm-hmm. oxytocin becomes more potent. And it will pick you up to the next level. And if that becomes too scary or anxious for you for a little bit, you'll get more adrenaline. And it'll hold things back a little bit mm-hmm. for you until you feel safe and again at that new level and then move on. But those drugs together with the endorphins and the encephalins and all your other yummy little natural drugs, um, by the time things have progressed towards the end, I just, this one birth in particular, she went from uh, somewhere around seven centimeters, she went from being very fearful, all suddenly fearful. I don't know if I can do this on my chart, you know. Um, which seems, again, more like an adrenaline response, that fear response. Once she overcame that, high as a kite. Mm -hmm. I mean, she just sat in the birth tub telling the funniest stories about her life and about her husband. Uh, And it was surreal Mm -hmm. that she has now over just, it it just seemed like the adrenaline is completely gone. No Mm -hmm. no more fear, no Mm -hmm. more anxiousness, just riding over the top of the wave Mm -hmm. every time instead of letting it crash over her and make Mm -hmm. her nervous. Mm -hmm. Um, Isn't that beautiful to witness? It's incredible. I had a birth recently where, and I was her doula. So I was not prepared for Uh, a home delivery and we were just riding it together and like going through each one and she was so relaxed and so surrendered and describing her sensations and then at one point she's like that's the baby's head and I was like what (laughs) (laughs) she's like the head I was like let me let me just get my glove real quick and I literally I was like oh that's that is the baby's head and do you have any towels? <laughs> <laughs> Tells you don't care about that much. Um, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. All right. Getting so, back to early labor. So early labor. I do have two other questions for you. Did I answer your last one? The difference between prodromal and what early labor feels like? 
I think the, the difference. difference between them. Yeah. I mean, early labor versus prodromal. Prodromal is like can go on and on for days, and there's not a huge rhythm to it, but maybe like 30 minutes, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, act, uh, early labor where it's like, okay, we're, we're in a productive um, pattern. It's when you were still able to talk maybe during mm-hmm. or through, but they are consistent. And, you know, I don't know that there's a specific number of how many minutes apart, but let's say five to 10 minutes apart. Okay. And they are gaining in intensity, and they are gaining in length. So you start to notice that they are getting closer together, they're getting more intense, and- And they're lasting longer. They're lasting longer. And you yourself can tell, okay, these are progressing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still early labor when you can talk through them, Mm -hmm. and when you can talk in between them. But when you are no longer able to do anything but really, like, grab onto the grass to keep from falling off the face of the earth, we're starting to be more active. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say, like, you know, they. I think um, ACOG is saying six centimeters yeah. is now the new barometer for early to active. To active labor. Which, to me, feels kind of like a ripoff for a lot of women because they could very well be having active labor contractions where, you know, as a midwife, we call them five minutes apart. They are a minute long and they've been that way for an hour. That's typically when, you know. You would call that active. We would call that active, assuming that she can't talk, right? Like if a mom can still talk during, time to go. Mm, But the six centimeter rule from ACOG, I think, has a benefit, which is that if they Previously, it was earlier, like right, five, four, five centimeters, four, four centimeters. Yeah, and so they were, they would start to say, "Well, now that you're in active labor, we want to see things move very quickly." Yeah. But for a lot of labors, four centimeters is not yet moving very quickly, mm-hmm. and so they they want to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's that benefit on the six centimeter that at least now um, things are more likely to move quickly when they determine. That you're in active labor. I, I I agree with that, and I love that aspect. What I don't like is how women feel invalidated. Oh, know? like I'm not in active labor, right? Like because oh, I'm this... only four centimeters or five centimeters, right. but I'm but, but I'm I, having. But the I've pattern. been doing this all night, and I've oh, been throwing up, yeah. and I'm shaking. I what you say? I'm not active. Like yeah. you know, I think women feel defeated. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I wish we would look less at you know the dilation and mm-hmm. listen more to what women are saying and. You know, like things can go well, very quickly. You have to be there to listen to uh, what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Call me. Um, so here's the two questions. Number one, what if water breaks first? That can be tough too. You know, um, uh, you know, if you are, again, if you're, I can compare it. If you're in a hospital-based birth plan, most OBs want to see you soon, readily, so they can start running Pitocin to get things going, you know. When water breaks, does somebody always know that that's what it is? No. Can it be confused for? I think I might have just peed a little. Can it be confused for other things? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, you know, I mean, like a little blurb of fluid. Um, I mean, because it's not always that big, like supermarket aisle seven cleanup gush. (laughs) Almost rarely is it that. Um, Sometimes it's aisle eight, more of the pasta and pasta (laughs) sauce. Um, you know, you know, pregnancy in Chinese medicine is considered a damp condition. So you're going to have mm. a lot of discharge. Dampness. Damp. Very mm. damp. You know, yeah. usually starting somewhere around 24, 28 weeks, women are like, um, what's all this fluid coming out of me? Um, however, that's it's a very normal condition. Um, lots of panty liners and changing your panties, especially if it's summertime. That will happen. Um, but, you know. I mean, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I swear the last week of my pregnancy, like I must have checked my amniotic fluid three times because I was like, my water broke in the grocery store. Nope, it didn't. Um, It was just vaginal discharge. Mm -hmm. And that is a really normal thing, especially the end of pregnancy. But we're not used to seeing that. So for many of us, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's it. My water broke. Time to go. What do I do? And, you know, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a hind leak a very small tear somewhere in the uh, amniotic sac, and you might be, like, uh, secreting a little bit of fluid here or there. But you said you would go home and check. How do you check? 
Um, you can use pH papers. You can, so the amniotic fluid has different. It turns black Ooh. in amniotic fluid because it's very alkaline. All right. So that's a way to check yourself if you want to know. Just have pH paper hanging around. Well, you can buy them at a lot of uh, drugstores now. So it's you know, but it is helpful if you're one of those people who is kind of worried. Just have some on hand. Yeah. Um, do you do things differently if water breaks before contractions start? Yes. Are there different recommendations for your clients? Yeah. I mean, the first rule of thumb is nothing in the vagina, right? You want to stay clean. You know, hospitals like to have you really in active labor by 24 hours. If you are GBS negative, GBS is a bacteria. Ooh, groupie strep. That is tested for at 36 weeks, and if you are, if you have none of this bacteria in that swab at 36 weeks, um, there's some flexibility as to when you actually have to get labor going. Mm-hmm. You know, I I will not tell you the longest I have gone, um, but you know, it's been longer than 24 hours. It's not black and white. It, it's not, you know, and I think again, the model of care by which I practice entitles me to give. A lot of attention to each client, and if a woman hasn't gone into labor, I mean, I do carry the antibiotics. We can start running them at 18 or 24 hours after rupture, but most clients who are choosing home birth are not seeking that kind of medicated labor. Mm -hmm. But in a hospital setting, your OB is going to want you in the hospital and wants to give you pit and get this baby coming out. You know, they're trying to um, lower the risk of infection, which I understand. I just remembered a time I once called you. Um, I was a doula for someone's fourth baby, and her water broke before her contraction started on that one, not her typical pattern. And um, the doctors were so freaked out about it because she didn't say anything right away. I think maybe it was 12 hours yeah. since her water broke. And when they came in, they're like, we need to start inducing right now because the baby has to be out. Mm-hmm. By 24 hours from the time the water, the membranes ruptured, and um, you know that just put so much pressure on her that she she didn't really want to be induced. But they're like, well, otherwise we're going to have to do a C-section because if 24 hours comes up, the baby has to be out. And it's the first time I was ever at a hospital birth. I called you up and I said, "Have you ever <laughs> taken on a client late in pregnancy?" And you're like, "How late?" I'm like, "In labor." But you did it to me. <laughs> You know, so turnabout. Um, we were very seriously considering transferring from a hospital birth to a home birth, which I had never seen before. I see it sometimes the other way. Mm. I'd never seen it before. It was like in the 22nd hour, she just dropped down on the ground and pushed that kid out. Mm. Did she get Pitocin? No. Good for her. No pit. She yeah. held out. Good for her. But it was only because she had like Alex in her pocket. You're like, oh. is she cray cray? Like, what kind of, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any relationship with this person. It was like a crazy, like, potential situation there. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult, you know, and I and I understand the reasons by which modern obstetrics has their protocols. And, of course, this varies hospital to hospital. Um, luck, and midwife to midwife, too. Some midwives are not comfortable going past 24 hours. You know, I think you're really only comfortable with what you have experience with. But I also think you vary from client to client. I think some clients are totally okay with that protocol and they're happy to go for it. In this particular case, on her fourth baby, not having had any interventions with her first three, she just wasn't feeling, she took the information they gave her and she was not feeling like she wanted to take action at that point. She made an informed choice not to. So. So I just want to bring this up because I think this is a a critical distinction, and that is when your doctor is saying, when a doctor is saying, you need to do this, you actually have the right to say, no, I don't Mm -hmm. want to do that. And, you know, again, a benefit of midwifery care is that we can say, here are your options. What would you like to do? Here are the risks. Here are the benefits. We don't make our decisions for our clients. We can say what we're comfortable with. Um, But, you know, I think most people don't realize that they have a choice because they often get strong-armed into doing things they wouldn't necessarily want to do because they're not getting full informed consent. Mm-hmm. Now, to answer your question about what do I do yes. specifically if a client's water breaks and they're not in labor, if they are GBS negative, right. I kind of sit back and watch and, you know, 
I give them what we call. You I know, thought you were going to say something wickedly profound, like. I have this little secret <laughs> that I do, and your secret is I just sit back and watch. Well, <laughs> what if that is the secret? Yeah, it's great. It's a fine secret. You know, we as long it's as this is not what I was expecting. I thought you were gonna be like, I have this magic button that I press. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so you know, if the water's green or brown, that's a different story, right? What does that mean? Uh, means the baby's pooped in the water. Okay, okay. You know? and we would expect that in a baby who's over 40 weeks gestation, Mm -hmm. we would not expect that in a baby who's 37 weeks. Um, You know, I think babies are constantly communicating to us and it's, you know, we are listening through the use of the Doppler, but we're also using information that the mother gives us and that the fluid gives us and the father gives us. And I mean, I ask the baby, what do I need to know? And I listen to the heartbeat and I feel like, you know, the nature of the care that I provide is I am in relationship with the mother, mm-hmm. the father or the partner and the child that's growing inside her. Mm-hmm. So I have this privilege to already be in connection with them. My clients, if their water breaks and they are GBS positive, we get very proactive. You know, if by 12 hours post rupture, we are probably doing acupuncture. We're definitely doing the breast pump, maybe doing some herbs. You know, we, you know, do have a a time limit that we're working under because we don't want a sick baby either. So, you know, there is a risk factor with having a prolonged rupture of membranes and being GBS positive. Yeah. If you're GBS negative, we're not as concerned, but we are certainly limiting VAG exams. Um, But, you know, after 24 hours, if a mom has not gone into labor, we tend to get a little bit more proactive. We are doing acupuncture. We're doing walking. Trying to stimulate an orgasm, getting the breast pump out. All in a day's work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and nudging this labor to pick up. You know, what's difficult is we don't really know if it's a hind leak mm-hmm. way up in the amniotic sac or if it's, you know, right by the vagina and the birth canal. Like, you know, if it's the break is by the birth canal, that, you know, it could be bacteria can float up inside. Yeah, you lose your barrier of protection. And we, you know, try and limit vag exams for a mom whose water's been broken, you know. To avoid bringing more bacteria. Correct. Thank you. Um, You've shared a lot of great information. I know that especially people who have not had a baby yet but are going to soon will have picked up some really good tidbits here. Um, Where can people find you online? You can find me. Um, should, I shouldn't give them my phone number right now, should I? Whatever you like. <laughs> um, you can find me on my website, actually, at Alex, A-L-E-K-S, Evangelidi. It's such a mouthful, but E-V-A-N-G-U-E-L-I-D-I. Okay, I've been spelling it wrong all these years. Dot com. Most people do. But I feel like if you Google even close to Alex Evangelidi, uh, it still leads to you. It might. Yeah, there's nobody quite like that. My my cousin actually has the same name, but really, yeah, it's and that's with that's a K. That, no, no, and, mm. but and it, it he's a boy, so oh. that's a little bit different. Um, and definitely like check us out and the under the hood podcast. Under the hood, it's such a cool thing that we're doing. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure, kind of like you are with your baby, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's very funny exciting. that you put it that way. Um, I uh. <laughs> we'll also point out there's another episode of our podcast with you that's a little bit older. It's the uh, roadside delivery episode, which is both informational and entertaining. <laughs> but what I'm also going to hope for and sort of promise to the audience is that we'll be back with more Alex on other topics. Oh, please do. Thanks, Emil, for being here. And at home, thanks so much for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, send your suggestions to info at informedpregnancy.com. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. 
As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.